Welcome, folks. This is episode one of the Running Man Self-Regulation and Self-Development Project podcast. And I am your host, uh, Armando Dominguez, Dr. Armando Dominguez, Ph.D. in health psychology. I'm also a licensed professional counselor clinician. But uh, what this podcast is going to be focusing on um, is generally self-regulation skills, things that just now are coming in vogue in the psychological field. But these are things that have been around for a long time, and I do sincerely believe that they're effective, but they do not necessarily belong in my opinion, and in my bestest of all estimations, yes, that is bad English, uh, in just strictly a clinical setting. These are things that we should be, in my opinion, uh, teaching our kiddos. Start teaching, teaching adults that have trouble regulating themselves in stressful situations, anxious situations, things along the lines of anxiety and panic response. And also during stressful situations, such as uh, if we're in sports or in a stressful work environment or even a relationship wherever maybe there's contention and stress, being able to self-regulate helps improve not only rapport but also the outcome and minimizing uh, the po- potential for getting into arguments or even worse, maybe even uh, a degradation into physical acting out and violence. So... The focus of this podcast is going to be in those elements that not only affect us whenever we're under great deals of stress, but also whenever we're at the extremes of that stress, uh, fight, flight, and whenever we might feel like our environmental assumption of safety is not met, such that we become not only stressed, but afraid, and we become much more reactive and therefore giving our ability to choose in our environment moment to moment away uh, to the person or persons or the environment or those stimulus that would be maybe a predator, and that could be an animal or a human being, whatever the situation is, giving them the opportunity to choose for us what direction we're going to go and therefore steering us in a direction maybe we didn't want in the first place. So this is a really broad statement I'm making. It's also a very strong one, but it's one that this podcast over time uh, in the future, we're going to be releasing several episodes focusing on very specific aspects of the hypervigilant response, what happens to us, how our thinking uh, tends to reflect our state of being. Uh, we'll be discussing not only the psychological thought process, but also the neurological responses occur under stress. We'll also be covering, well, what's it look like? What's it sound like whenever I'm experiencing stress? And what can I do to stop that? The whole point of this podcast isn't to talk about things and point fingers and discuss, well, these symptoms and that symptom, but rather to determine how can I be self-aware? How can I become self-regulatory? I don't like to use the term control because it sounds not only absolute, but almost offensive when we tell somebody to control themselves, for instance, uh, versus learning how to develop self-control. And that is really the, the point of this podcast and recognizing many years as a clinician, but also as a martial artist that I was away before I ever became a clinician, that being able to understand the state of being that one was experiencing when one is under duress, that that makes the biggest difference in how well one is going to weather and respond 
and also what the outcome is going to be, whether it's successful or not. Did I protect myself? Did I get beat? This sort of thing in the martial sense. And that's really not so different from whenever we're in a domestic setting, when we're talking with our children, when we discuss things with a loved one or a friend and things might get heated. And we tend to mirror or even seem to be following what it is that the immediate uh, suggestion is in the environment that it's tense, it's angry, so therefore I have to reflect that. We become like those that are around us. And um, that is a very socialized scheme, but it's also one that uh, unravels very quickly. And it tends to precede our best reasoning simply because our best reasoning goes offline temporarily. And that is a result of blood flow, blood flow going away from the front part of our brain. If you look into a lot of the popular literature right now, a lot of the pop psychology books have a lot with the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, and how that has to do with our best reasoning and rationale and how our intellect that is resident there makes the decisions for us. And we have what we would call fast thinking, slow thinking. There's been a book written about that in particular, which wasn't profound in the sense that it was divided that way. But the fact is there is a profundity within that. Because there is a relative consciousness, depending on how stressed you are, that tends to reflect what it is that our physiological state is. It's not just merely the thoughts, which are the outcomes of our our thinking, or what we would call mind. Um, it's probably more accurate to say, you know, I'm mind because I have brain. So therefore, my thoughts are a result of brain. Without brain, you have no thought, so to speak. And um, whenever we're in a stressful state... Whenever our thought is marginalized because of a lack of blood flow, and I did say lack, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it gets shunted or directed away from uh, the prefrontal cortex because higher reasoning is not a priority survival tool. It is secondary, if anything. Now, it does stay in our lower brain, and that has to do more with our subconscious uh, thoughts and reactions that are along the lines of reflex in our cerebellum or basal brain. But uh, these are things that we're going to have to discuss because blood flow goes to the default areas, the things that will encourage our organismic survival. Meaning if my body feels unsafe, it's probably better that I'd be able to be really strong and really fast versus really intellectually superior because I can still get eaten. It doesn't matter how smart I am, especially if I'm not really fast or able to fight or defend myself against some sort of physical threat or predation or danger. So keeping these things in mind, this may sound like a lot of jargon. We're going to break it down very simple. And what is really cool about what we will be talking about is that you have to just be able to understand that and know how it occurs within you. You don't have to remember what the terminology is. You don't remember what structure you need to fire so you can run when you have to run. So along those lines in the spirit of that, it's going to be very simple. And these are things that you'll be able to not only use yourself but also be able to share with your kiddos and be able to do some, maybe some fun exercises and learning how to use these tools. Because over time, once they become yours, you realize that they were yours the whole time anyway. This is part of our genetic inheritance. This is what we received as being human, but no one really showed us how to use it. There are a lot of books out there that teach you how to manage anxiety, how to bust anger. And these tools do apply whenever we are physically angry, by the way, not just anxious, but also if we have depression 
or episodes wherever I'm getting moody or irritable, we have to recognize that those aren't thought processes, even though there's thought involved with that, but rather they're physiological states where our body is experiencing stress at some level in some way that uh, it's affecting our best thinking and our best ability to interact with folks and may even cause that to break down. So once again, in the spirit of simplicity, uh, these tools are, are going to be things that I'll, I'll be putting uh, podcasts out. I'll be putting some videos out on YouTube that are semi-instructional. Some are old lectures I've done for some of my former college students during COVID that are really useful ideas just to contemplate and to be able to apply these tools with that understanding helps us have a deeper understanding of how we interact with people and how people respond to stress and how it's not just the people out there, but also the people, the person that I'm pointing at with my own finger right now, that's me, and how it affects me. So that way we can improve our communications, we can improve our relationships. And that's not just at home, but with our loved ones, also with our co-workers. And we start to understand that things shouldn't be taken as personally as we take them sometimes, because often much of what we see is a very socialized response. Whenever somebody is acting shocked or sees something that is socially in quotes, and I'm flexing my air quotes here, you can't see me since this is audio. Um, when somebody is acting frightened, notice I said act, often one is responding in a way that is socially acceptable um, to somebody or something that's going on that we're supposed to deem as uh, fearful or fear-inducing more correctly or scary. Now, there are real things that scare you, yes, but much of what we do is a contrivance. It's inauthentic. It's actually a response that we socially do to be more accepted by the group or the crew. So if we were still in a tribe setting many, many years ago and we were cave people, not that you are now, but if you are, hey, no offense, but if you aren't, just know that our forebears at some point, they were. And these are some things that aren't so different now than when we used to experience them back then as our simple forebears um, living in the hunter-gatherer time, belonging to a tribe. And if they did not look like, respond like, or even maybe smell like or act like they did, then they might have been shunned. They may have been set aside. They may have been cast out because they don't look like me. They don't sound like me. Well, I don't know who you are. Why are you doing that? We don't do that. And that inclusive thing is a very clannish tribal behavior that we see with very tight-knit families. That Not that that's a bad thing, but just as an example here in modern times. And even football teams. What do they wear? Baseball teams. Sports teams. They wear the same jerseys. Why? They identify with each other and recognize each other on the field so they don't go around smacking the, the wrong player. They don't need to be tackling their own player if they're playing football. They need to tackle the ones that are of a different color, for instance. And that is an extension, a socialized extension in sport that is not so different from what we used to experience a long time ago as a survival need to be accepted and included in tribe. And therefore, much of what we do within it, we might see things that are contrivances, that are inauthentic things. It is not, some people may act scared and those that don't are often shunned because, well, they have no feelings. They're insensitive, are some of the judgments that we may hear. And those are socialized adjudications. Those are judgments based on what things look like. And things aren't always as they seem. So we're going to get into some of the deeper skills 
that have to do with cutting through the crap, so to speak, and getting to the heart and the most authentic heart of the matter of how we interact with each other so we can encourage not only good communication, but also compassion for other people. And that also turned towards ourselves, compassion and understanding towards ourselves. Because often if we judge someone as different other than or set aside, set apart, or not from here, not local, we have put them in a box, a category, such that they're not part of us, they don't belong to us, and they're somehow different. And that's the beginning of dehumanizing someone if this is a person or people or person, people group or persons. And this is where we start noting differences and notice, noting how prejudices have to do with how things look versus how they actually are. And we start developing beliefs and thoughts about such things. We start making a narrative. And that is an extension of what our natural neurology does. Whenever we perceive things, that's information coming into our sight, smell, sound, touch, hearing, taste, all of those things. At that level, when the signal comes in, if we take that and it doesn't make sense, we make sense of it by making a story, connecting it somehow, trying to make sense of it, and we assume things to be. We tend to make thoughts and stories narrative once again that makes sense to us so we can categorize it versus it just running willy-nilly through our mind. It has to have a space, has to have a similarity or some sort of category that makes sense to us so we can use it in the future, so we can pull it up when we need to. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter. It's just a matter of how can I make it make sense to me so it can be useful to me later as information. Now, this... uh, perfect example is uh, whenever we have prejudices against things, against people, beliefs based on how we feel. And feelings change. Feelings do not make things true, nor does it make it factual. Now, the fact of the matter is you may be experiencing feelings, but it has nothing to do with good reasoning. But often if they're really particularly intense in a very um, fast-moving, acute situation, one that's painful, that one that's scary, Uh, we will have feelings very quickly that are so intense that often they will drive and motivate us to move or act in a certain way. That being the case, often we will see people acting out on what they believe to be. And often I have heard many folks talk to me and tell me, it seemed so real, it felt so real. Not that it was. Then they look back and realize they were a mistake. Uh, in, in the fact that they acted on something that wasn't true. It wasn't factual, but rather the feelings were so intense that it was compelling. Not only compelling, they developed a belief that it was somehow real at some level because it had to be because it was so intense. And even though that's not necessarily true, that was how they responded. And if it's intense enough and compelling enough, it will motivate our fight-flight response. And that is reactivity. It's not response. If we respond mindfully, that means we're thinking and then choosing to act. When we're reacting, we're taking a signal in and we're allowing our lower brain to decipher that signal as a very hedonic signal. Is It's either going to be approach or avoid. Hedonic in the sense that it has to do with our avoiding pain and approaching pleasure 
or at least at, at the very least stopping those things that are painful even though not reaching toward pleasure but at least neutralizing where things don't hurt and those things become attractive not in the pretty sense but rather attractive in the sense that we're more apt to choose or move in that direction so there are some very complicated things that i've just mentioned today and even though there's a complex interplay all these things these are very fascinating things when we start getting more deeply into them because some of these things can be changed some of these aspects of our reactivity if we're aware of them we can use them to prevent a digression of a communication that turns into an argument or into a fight or to violence we can start seeing preemptively early what look like the seed signals that tell us that something is going awry something's going to go bad someone's going to act out or something dangerous could possibly happen so that'll give us not only time but also by default distance an ability to remove ourselves from wherever that activity is and put us, ourselves in a situation that's much more amenable to our safety and therefore our organismic survival goes up so in this vein the running man podcast self-regulatory skill project it's a project because it's going to develop and we're going to be teaching and there'll be some audio and video recordings that'll be there not only to teach but also to give someone reference so that way if they want to share that with their loved ones their kiddos they can and the project goal is to help people improve how they regulate themselves to lessen stress in their lives improve quality of life and increase quantity of quality things in their lives by virtue of having better outcomes because we learn how to self-regulate also how to interpret the signals in someone else early enough that we can prevent things from falling apart and becoming negative or destructive or even violent for that matter these are survival skills that i have used that have kept me alive and i've taught them to students of mine in the martial arts and a few of them have had to defend the lives of loved ones and that's no exaggeration but also themselves against stick knife gun this sort of thing and they made it these aren't guarantees but those are extremities of circumstance but they've also used them and regulating themselves whenever things were dangerous whenever things required their calm versus their freaking out or acting in a way that's over the top or in the way that is the expected way people are supposed to respond because this is a really uh, scary or dangerous circumstance and able to mindfully navigate what it is that's going on in the immediate environment so just some base terms that we'll start with our environment the term environment we have an environment from the skin out we'll call that our exogenous environment for my students and all of those that are familiar with that term meaning outside of and also i'm going to be iterating these terms so that way if you have a kiddo they start learning some of these fancy words that have to do with understanding outside inside exogenous having to do with outside of the body so we have our exostress or outside of our skin 
our environment outside of our skin is not separate from the environment that is endogenous or within our body that uh, is from the skin in. The way the environment on the outside impacts our body by whatever stimulus may present, whether it be a predator, whether it be something that we see that's scary, it could be something fun. It doesn't always have to be dangerous. You might see somebody having fun jumping in the bouncy house at a party, and that could elevate your heart rate and change your breathing, and that is a stress, but it's a positive stress. We'll call that eustress. Eustress is a good stress, one that we many times will choose to get into, like maybe riding a mountain bike or going running just because we enjoy it, that sort of stuff. And then we have distress. Those are the negative stressors that cause us pain, fear, discomfort, this sort of thing. And the stress on the outside of our skin creates change within the inside of our skin, like the heart rate change, the breathing change, temperature change, and the ability to determine if there's been an increase in heat or cold suddenly that we have to go inside, especially if it's something that's a a snap change that we have to be able to determine is it safe outside, safe inside, this sort of thing. So these things happen in fractions of a moment very, very quickly, autonomically, automatically in our system. But important to note is that often whenever I have talked to people, and I've had many people that I've seen describe what their scary and terrorizing situations may have been at one point, things that were traumatizing or at the very least surprising that they didn't expect, Often, they cite how unaware they were of how their body responded to stress. Part of it is because they were not practiced in that level of stress. Some may have been athletes, may have been in sport, and that is a stress that teaches you how to be more resilient. But whenever you have a situation that is potentially dangerous or harmful to you, we don't practice those things unless you're in martial arts. And even then, you can't practice for every contingency. When you speak to, for instance, first responders and law enforcement, they train for very, very dangerous circumstances. But even they will tell you that they can't account for every single possibility. All they can do is train themselves to have skills that become second nature. Not reflexive, which is automatic, that's first nature, but second nature, such that they can do something without thought necessarily, but it has been conditioned to become so natural for them that it comes out very quickly, very smoothly, whenever it needs to, when stress is involved. That's also called stress inoculation. So we talked about how our stress response is, and also understanding what happens when we're under stress, and knowing that stress sometimes is a good thing, Sometimes it can be a very bad, negative thing, but stress on the body is what changes heart rate and breathing in particular. So these are some things that uh, we will discuss more in depth uh, further on in the future when I start releasing some other episodes on the podcast. Um, We will be having some interviews in the future already. I have some folks lined up that we're going to be visiting with relative to their experiences versus just hearing me and my experience, but also knowing that uh, there are people out there trying to help others along the lines of developing skills and the kind of research and self-experimentation that they do 
not with drugs, mind you, but rather with uh, skills such as breathing, yoga, meditation, martial art, um, things along the lines of body work, of which I have done. Um, I've gone through the full 10-segment series of rolfing, and uh, the lady that worked on me, she is out of Bernie. Her name is uh, Miss Rita Michael, and she's a master practitioner of, well, back then was over 30 years, so she probably has close to about 40 years of practice and very little pressure, but uh, the structure of my body changed and looked different after she'd worked on me, but it also helped me manage stress at a level that your best thinking can't make the stress and the response to stress, tense muscles in this case, that can misalign the, the bone structure. Um, the stress occurs at a level that is not verbal. It is the wordless level of mind. It is the subconscious mind. It is the part that we're not aware of. And it is resident in our body as far as the stress and the knots that many people can relate to that people have that often people say, oh, I have tension there. But why can't it just go away if you're aware of it? Why is it that you can't just think something positive and then it just go away? Well, fact of the matter is the unicorns crapping rainbows, um, unfortunately, don't fix everything. This doesn't mean that positive thinking doesn't pay it, play its role. It actually does. Within the right paradigm, if you're into sports, uh, visualization and seeing yourself doing things has been studied rather extensively, and it is a very powerful tool. But why doesn't it work, one would ask, whenever one's under stress, when is, one is experiencing anxiety, when one has PTSD, when one is depressed or angry, why doesn't it work then, people tell me? It's a really good question. But the positive thinking does have a good role to play. And we will start with the first visual exercise. And it's fun. I've done it for so many years, I have to be careful because I get rather... Um, slobbery uh, whenever I do this because I have conditioned myself to respond to this. But what I'd like you to do, and just play along with me, is I want you to just imagine a lemon. There's nothing original about this. Many people have used it. I've used this um, example for many, many years just to teach my students how to respond and how to create change in the body with just a visual image. But once you pull up the lemon, it can be any lemon, doesn't matter. It can also, it's not necessarily the lemons that I've seen, but somewhere in your life you may have seen one of umpteen thousand lemons, but it may not even be a specific one or even seeing somebody biting a lemon out in your physical environment in the immediate now. And also a recall a remembrance of whenever I saw this person or a person biting a lemon, or maybe I even tasted something sour or something salty like a lemon, and yet we still salivate without necessarily having to have a lemon there present in front of us. At that level of brain, our visual level of brain, uh, our brain cannot differentiate uh, whether or not it is seeing something outside of us, our external environment, versus just remembering it internally in our mind. And the term memory, remember, recall, imagine, imagination, daydream. These are all the same thing that causes the visual aspect of our brain to, to fire. 
and we're having a recall that it's not only of a lemon or something yellow or something citric, whatever it is, but it's at the level of the brain that does not label like I just did right now. I just did a prefrontal cortex exercise and saying lemon, yellow, citrus, sour, this sort of thing that I'm categorizing, naming, and labeling to make sense of what's in my world or my thoughts of what's in my world. At the level of brain that we pull up that memory, uh, the speed of which, whenever we have signal, we're talking about 150 to 300 milliseconds on that visual memory recall. That is incredibly fast. The part of my brain that was saying, oh, lemon, yellow, sour, citrus. Oh, I remember when I saw so-and-so eating that. Uh, that's the prefrontal cortical process. That's our reasoning. And that's something that's pretty fast. It comes on at 1.2 seconds, but it, in comparison to the visual brain that pulls the visual memory at the wordless level of mind and the lower brain structures, it's 400 times slower. 1.2 seconds is 400 times slower than the 150 to 300 millisecond range that the recall comes up. But our body starts to feel before it ever starts thinking at the higher prefrontal cortex level at 1.2 seconds, it's closer to wherever the signal is 150 to 300 milliseconds that we get the feels pop up. That's where we start having feelings. And these feelings are often what frightens us or motivates us to move or change if it's dangerous. The recall, but why is this important? That lemon could have been 10 years ago, it could have been 10 minutes ago. And we're still responding with salivation, which means our body throws a signal out. Therefore, the pituitary hormone is dropped and we salivate. We physically changed our body with a visual recall, an imagination action. We remembered. But it was a flash of memory so fast that maybe we weren't even consciously aware other than we were encouraged to think lemon. It happened so fast, and yet our body responded with salivation. That means our body fundamentally changed from one state to the next based on something that wasn't real. In the sense that at some point it had been, because you've seen the lemon way back when. If it was a lemon from 10 years ago, you experienced it as a real lemon. But now you experience it as a recall of having seen a real lemon. But yet our brain can't tell the difference, and it still salivates. In expectation of food. This is also called the cephalic phase of eating. But this cephalic phase of eating isn't always just a visualization about food. Whenever we have, and this is where our lemon becomes a bad lemon, it's no longer good food, uh, along the lines of post-traumatic stress recall. When we have PTSD, when we have nightmares, Whenever we have daydreams, whenever we've been traumatized and we can't close our eyes for long because flashes of memory come up, this is compelling. And those recalls are causing our body to respond versus salivating. It's kicking our other hormones into the body and that's going to be the adrenal response. Often people that have anxiety and panic whenever they're sleeping will have a release of adrenaline and often are very irritable and angry and very strong. And they're in the sense of I'm very, very vulnerable. So therefore I've got to get away or fight or protect myself. 
and often it can get rather ugly and violent rather quickly if it's something that may startle someone out of sleep. But yet a hormone in the body as a result of an imagination or an imaginal recall or just bringing something up that was unpleasant, it's not real, it's not happening right now, but why do we respond as if it's real? Now, I do take issue with people that say that whenever they have a recall, they're reliving it. They're not in an immersive situation because no memory, whenever we recall it, is ever experienced the exact same way it was whenever we remembered it the first time. We tend to hyper-focus on the areas that tend to be more pertinent to us, or those are the things that we may have focused on that had to do with our immediate sense of survival that may have given us a point of perspective that made us think that by doing this, I might increase my survivability. We try to control those things. You know, stressful environments sometimes, and we tend to hyper-focus on that. Often during stressors, uh, one will see very, very clearly up close in a tunnel vision, almost like the end of a coffee can, uh, about six to eight inches uh, wide and our peripheral vision starts to narrow and these are things that we have to pay attention to because whenever we're under that level of stress we tend to respond as if it is right now and it's really just our body trying to protect us and it's very associative in that if i'm somewhere and let's say i've had a trauma and there was a black pen or a blue pen around and i may see somebody walking around and uh, they might have, let's say, a blue pen sticking out of their pocket, and I start having anxiety. But I'm not keying on the picture, but yet our vision starts picking up a similar color. Our body is always looking for patterns. It's always remembering, recognizing, and trying to predict. As a result of whatever pain or trauma we may have experienced, um, we try to prevent that from happening. So it only makes sense that our body would go into fight-flight mode, into anxiety mode, into panic mode, into fight-flight once again in the sense that we're trying to run or fight in the sense that we're trying to fight, or maybe even freeze for that matter, because that is a viable response that if we sit still for too long, not too long, but for a short period of time during stress, often if we are truly being preyed upon, uh, stillness may actually cause us to have a default camouflage that we can't be seen. So we have those programs within us as well uh, to try to hide in immediate sight. Often people describe it as being invisible or trying to become invisible by being still and inert and looking like the rest of the environment or at least hoping that they look that way. So by learning self-regulatory skills, Whenever we have negative responses, we tend to be able to prevent those negative events from going too far or from becoming much too intense to wherever we may respond or react in a way that if there's drug use, for instance, that we may, we may start using drugs whenever we're trying to stay away from it. We may use that, and often the term in quotes is self-medication. What are we medicating self for? What are we experiencing that we have to take something to make us change how we're feeling. Taking a quick drink here, but the feelings that we have are often very intense when we're under stress and we want to change them because they're unpleasant. 
And feelings come, feelings go. But if you've never learned to realize that feelings are temporary, um, assuming a situation is temporary and not chronic, they will go away at some point. But if we have a chronically stressful, dangerous, or irritating environment, then that stress level never goes down and we condition to having high levels or high degrees of stress and anxiety and feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, and anger. And we may even be more apt to act out and strike out because we feel like we can't get away. And many times we start developing what uh, science has determined to be a real phenomena called learned helplessness. We start believing that there's no way out. They're just going to hurt me, so may I just may as well just lay here and let it be over. They did these studies with dogs, wherever the dogs would no, no longer live, leave the electrified cage, because they did it so often. They basically assume it'll be over soon enough. It was hurtful. It was painful, but they just laid there without hope, without any attempt at trying to leave the cage, even though there was definitely a point of. Uh, departure or egress available to them and we can become that too with a chronic enough level of stress and if we understand this that opens our minds to having compassion with ourselves because uh, chronicity of stress or chronic environments that are dangerous to us they're real whenever you're reading books you hear about these things not everything is about trauma Sometimes it's just about feeling trapped or or feeling obligated to a social paradigm. Well, you're a parent. You shouldn't act this way. You're a dad. You shouldn't go over here. You're a mom. You shouldn't be doing that. Well, those are some guidelines and rules about being dutiful when it's uncomfortable. And that sometimes happens. But what about the reality of the stress that is based on a history that may not be occurring now, but yet is still impacting me today? This isn't the reliving, but rather the conditioning to stress that complicates my immediate time, my immediate now. Those are important things that we really have to cover and learn how to mitigate that by developing some tools and skills that we can take with us. The idea is to have a, an improvement in quality of life so we can have a greater quantity of quality things in our lives. Because often if we're responding in a way that's really negative, that's really stressed. We may be doing things that will be pushing people away from us, may be compromising situations that otherwise would be good for us or helpful to us. And we may lose any support that we might have of family, loved ones, or friends that otherwise would, would be there for us. And we might even feel extremely isolated because of that, because we feel not only misunderstood, but highly embarrassed maybe really shameful and we're judging ourselves harshly sometimes now if someone does something wrong i understand that and there's definitely a need for adjudication and set apart because some people just do not do well in society around other people they tend to take advantage of it it can become uh, very easy for a predator to find prey or people to prey upon Whenever people err on the side, not only of caution, but uh, having a very soft hand and being unwilling to take a stand and not trusting their intuitiveness whenever it comes to, I don't trust this person, or being afraid of offending somebody because the most 
current uh, movement for political correctness has such a hold on you, especially at work. Our neurology and our biology, our physiology, does not lie. It tells us how it is, and it's not meant to be socially appropriate. What I'm going to say now is whenever a stress hits, and it's a matter of survivability, and here in West Texas we use the term shit and get. When it's time to go, even if it means eliminating whatever poo you've got, it makes you run faster because you're now you're lighter. And that is something that we're wired to do whenever things get stressful. What is really important is to realize that whenever we experience such stress, we know that sometimes it's transient, it's going to come, it's going to go, and that's about it. But the big difference is that we experience similar levels of stress and stress response in domestic situations. Domestic does not necessarily mean violent by default, but often in domestic situations where we have these social contracts, these social understandings that, oh, you're not supposed to leave, you're supposed to stay here, that would be embarrassing. As if embarrassment has anything to do with your survivability, but it feels really uncomfortable whenever your heart rate goes up because you feel shame and guilt, and you have people looking at you, and they're going to treat you different because of it. We have to remember the, the social aspect of the cave person. If you're not accepted in the tribe, then your baloney sandwich meter is like going off the scale in the sense that you are now edible, and you have less defense, and someone's going to come around that's hungry, and they're just going to take a bite out of you. So that's just the facts. Those, those are the realities within what it is that drives us to be sociable and accepted. It's not about how pretty I am, how handsome I am, and that I have the most voters and support in that sense. Or that, you know, when we're at homecoming, that I have the most votes, and therefore I'm the winner of the, of the homecoming king and queen contest or whatever. This is about winning the contest of survivability. Am I above ground sucking wind? Am I alive on top of the ground walking and breathing? That is the penultimate of all things. Affirming of life in the sense that if I'm above ground sucking wind, I've won something. I am here. It's not points on the board nor the scoreboard, but rather surviving and living and therefore thriving and winning if we do it well. And there are some times that we don't feel like we thrive and, and live and win very well when we have anxiety, when we have depression, when we have anger outbursts because we feel like we can't control anything. And sometimes we start making the most marginalized of decisions because blood flow has shifted away from the top part of our brain that gives us reasoning that helps us determine what's healthy, what's not, versus responding to things based on what they look like. There's a lot to be considered, and there are going to be quite a few topics that we'll cover regarding not only vigilance and hypervigilance, but also the panic and anxiety response. What happens whenever I am confronted? What happens when I'm under stress? What happens when I'm experiencing good stress, for that matter? And... How are my beliefs and my behaviors impacted? And what can I do if my behaviors have become negative, my reactions have become negative, that they're impacting my life in a bad way? What can I do to change that? How can I change that? We're not going to discuss the why. The why is your business. What we will be discussing is the how do you do this? 
What do you do? Where do you do it? When do you do it? How often? Timing is everything in many cases, so the earlier the better. But the what of it, those are the tools and skills. The when of it, when they're most effective. And also in that, when part, is determining, well, when doesn't it work as well or when doesn't it work at all? Those are good questions to ask that we will be discussing with each, with each skill that we'll be discussing uh, moving forward with the running man. Self-regulation skill, self-improvement podcast. And that's going to be it for today. And I certainly appreciate any commentary. And I welcome you to come back and visit and share this podcast when we start uh, pushing out more of the skills. And I sincerely hope that we have another opportunity to visit and that I have some feedback from you folks and that we start sharing this information so we can improve our kiddos moving forward, but also so we can improve ourselves now. These tools work in work settings, they work in domestic settings, they work in individual settings with kiddos when you're adult to children, talking, playing, also kiddo to kiddo, you can encourage them to learn how to respond to each other more quickly. This also encourages compassion for other individuals and not playing or buying into the emotional load or the faces and the act, but rather tying into the individual and having compassion for the person and not getting irritated and having a judgment about or feelings about what somebody looks like or how they're manipulating, but instead recognizing the fact that they're hurting or something's frightening them. That's why they respond that way. From a perspective of understanding, I sincerely hope that uh, you can use the tools and skills that we'll share. But also, from that point of understanding, I would like to see you improve your life like these tools have improved mine. But I also would like to see us have further communication as to how well these tools work for you as well. You have a good night. It's been good talking to you. Once again, Running Man, Self-Regulation Skills, Self-Improvement Podcast, Episode 1. Good night. Thank you.